BBC Audio presents Doctor Who, Time Wake and Other Stories. The Sons of the Crab from the Doctor Who Annual 1966. Read by Dan Starkey. There was danger outside. Everything in him told him that. What little he could see in his sight screens was so fantastic and so freakish, even by all the standards of his fantastic adventures, that his hand hesitated on the lever which would open the great doors to whatever was outside. But Doctor Who had been through too many adventures to feel very much fear. The TARDIS had brought him further than he had ever been before. If his calculations and instruments were correct, he was now outside the home galaxy of the Milky Way and in an entirely new universe, the one known to him as the Crab Nebula. It was the first time his space-time ship had made such a vast journey, and now was not the time for hesitation. His hand moved to the lever, and his eyes were fixed on the main sight screen. It was like stepping out into a fire, and he fell back, trembling in every limb while the sweat broke out on his face. The TARDIS had materialised in what looked like a normal street in a normal city. But what a difference from any normal city Doctor Who had ever visited. The buildings were low and squat, and there were no windows. The structures looked more like blocks of blackish-grey metal than buildings in which human beings might live. Of course, he reflected to himself, this was a world revolving around some alien star in the Crab Nebula, and he need not expect to find human beings here. Turning, he looked back at his ship. He had closed the doors behind him out of precaution, and the complicated electronic key, without which the doors could not be opened, was safely in his pocket. He stared around him in amazement at the crowds of beings thronging in the street. And as he stared, his skin crawled again, as it had crawled when first he had looked into his sight screens on landing. A terrible faintness almost overcame him, and he leaned against the wall of the nearest building to steady himself. Instantly, through all his body, shot a current which froze him motionless in the attitude he had been standing in. Incapable of moving a muscle of his body, he stood like a statue while round him surged the crowds in the street. Horror swept over him again and again as he stood helpless, watching the most horrible sight his eyes had ever beheld. It was like all the nightmares ever experienced. The creatures were of all shapes and sizes, all colours and species. Running through all of them was one faint common likeness. Most of them were like enough to human beings, as regards heads and limbs. But there the resemblance ceased. Monsters he had always thought of as huge and horrible. Horrible enough these creatures were, but the horror was of quite another form to anything he had ever experienced in his own galaxy, or indeed on any world. These monsters were not large. These monsters were roughly his own size. There were some, whom he glimpsed momentarily, who were very like his own form, but, as his gaze froze on them, they changed in a hideous, flowing motion which seemed to liquefy the form. For example, into an egg-shaped monstrosity running along on a multitude of limbs and sprouting extra eyes as it scurried along. There were some which grew, apparently at will, into lanky forms twice their normal size. There was one creature which had several heads and limbs growing from its trunk where no limbs should be. 
There was a file of beings with beaks instead of mouths and claws instead of hands. There were... But his mind began to reel as his eyeballs rolled around while his body held as still as though cast into concrete. He tried to close his eyes and found, to his anguish, that even this was impossible. They were all around him, rushing and scrambling all over the flat surface between the squat buildings. They seemed to take no notice of him, though once or twice he did see eyes turned in his direction. Then one of them charged straight at him, and inwardly he almost screamed in a sheer maniac yell of terror. The thing, he could not call it a creature, had three heads. One with a great beaked nose of a vulture, one the head of something that reminded him of a brontosaurus, and one that was startlingly human. The body he did not even see, for the expression in the eyes of the third head, mercifully only two in number, held such agony and such fierce horror that it was almost enough to freeze the blood in his veins. The thing was upon him, and he could do nothing as his spirit cringed within him. At two feet from him, it slurped into an abrupt change of shape and towered above him as a great flower resembling an earth orchid. Even as his brain registered the image, it changed again, this time into a spraying jet of liquid. It ran through a bewildering series of changes during its onrush towards him, and then it hit him. A gigantic coruscation of sparks fountained over him, shot with flames and spouts of brilliant light. And then there was nothing. It had all happened in the space of a few Earth seconds, while the other creatures milling round him, in that flat space between the squat, blind buildings, had taken not the slightest notice. His mind was reeling towards merciful oblivion when, once again, he felt movement. It was not in his own body, that was as rigid as before, but the wall against which he had fallen, before the rigidity had seized him, was moving towards him. A square of the grey surface opened and a dim light shone out. Almost like a creature frozen into a square block of ice, he moved into the building and the walls sealed up again behind him. He rolled his eyeballs around, and relief like a warm flood of comforting solace washed around him. He could see human beings, normal human beings who stayed in one shape, who moved and walked and even laughed like human beings. Soon now he would be released from this bothersome rigidity and be able to talk to these inhabitants of this strange world and get an explanation for the enigmatic horrors thronging the street outside. He tried to move his limbs, but to his intense irritation, they were as rigid and motionless as before. The men before him were tall and thin, and dressed in tunics of a silvery metallic fabric. They were quite bald, and if his face muscles had been able to move, they would have made him laugh. He saw one of them move over towards an instrument, set on a white pedestal. It was somewhat like a small gun, save that its barrel consisted of coils of wire rather than a metal tube. He saw the man stoop and sight along the wire coils, and sudden fright overcame him. Then he laughed, and this time his face muscles moved. He moved his legs and his arms and his head. He was free again. He wiped his forehead with his handkerchief and fixed his monocle into his eye. He beamed round on the men surrounding him. It's an entirely new one, came a voice to his ears. 
You know, Murnagil, this could be a big breakthrough. You noted five whole minutes and complete negative reaction. I can't remember when such a thing was ever known before. It never was. Don't be too sure, Velcro, said another. It was outside, then. We'll have to run it through the routine tests in here, of course. Only then can we be sure. We can't set up the report until we're quite sure. I've known things like this before. Seems to be some sort of thing that attacks up at times so that they cling to one form longer than you'd think possible. It always breaks down after a very short while. Always has up to now, anyway. Well, let's get it over, shall we? Can't waste too much time. You know what they say. They think we're only amusing ourselves if we don't come up with some report or other. The group laughingly broke up, and the doctor stared round him in bewilderment. He took a step forward to grasp the arm of one of the men, and came up short against what seemed like an invisible wall. Of course, a force field. These men were scientists. All his surroundings told him that. They will be cautious of infection against anything coming in from outside, especially from such an outside as he had come. He began to shout and wave his hands, but none of them seemed to take the slightest notice of him. They spread out through the large, white room, and, as his eyes followed them in bewilderment, his respect from them grew by leaps and bounds. The place looked like a paradise to him. There was apparatus around all the white walls, instruments and mechanisms quite unfamiliar to him, although he guessed that their shape only seemed foreign to him, and that their uses would be quite easy for him to understand when once he knew their purpose. His own TARDIS was a glittering small replica of such a place, and he sighed with renewed relief as the feeling of once more being amongst friends who would understand him came over him. They might even welcome his coming, for surely nothing like the TARDIS had ever been known in any universe, even in this universe of the Crab Nebula. But their attitudes still puzzled him. He remembered that one of them had called him It, as though he was an object, or at best, a brute beast. A small chill came over him as he looked again at their smooth faces and bald heads. All the faces he now saw seemed to be completely devoid of any expression. True, they had laughed, but he remembered that their laughter had seemed cold and without any mirth, as though it came from a recording machine. He tried once more to walk towards them and speak, and found now that he could move. The force field was down, and he trotted across the room towards the two he had heard talking together. I say, I say, he began in a loud voice. Isn't anyone going to welcome me? I've come a very long way, millions of light years in fact. It's a very strange world you have here, and my first experience of it was all very unnerving. All right, all right, said one of them. Murnagil, you make a start, will you? Run the routine tests over it, and try to get a fix of its highest normal index. We don't want to feel happy too soon, but have you noticed it hasn't changed once, even in here? It talks true, you heard, said Murnagil. Not so unusual, that, but it needs examination. Most of them just howl and gibber. Can't remember when we last had a talker in here. Well, here goes. Two of you, put it on the stand. Fuming and shouting, Doctor Who found himself picked up by a pair of them and carried struggling towards a low stand, like a dais. As they dumped him on it, a railing of white rods shot up from the floor around him, so that once again he was a prisoner. Though this time he could move. He raged and shouted at them from behind the bars, which, as he shook them, held as firm as though a fly's feet were touching them. 
Is this any way to treat a visitor? He yelled. I'm a scientist, like you people evidently are. I'm human, like you are. What are you doing to me? Let me go. He stopped as a deep violet beam shot out from one of the instruments. It bathed him in an eldritch blue glow, and from out of it, he saw many of the men staring at him through what looked like large goggles. The violet glow bathed him for a few seconds and then vanished. He heard a sudden gasp of indrawn breath from the men. Quick, quick, said Valcro, the embolizer. I can't believe my own eyes. Not a flicker out of it, not an organ changed. You saw on the X-ray screens, rigid, 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 the wonder of it. Have we at last found it? Will this day go down in the annals of Wengrol as our day of deliverance? Quick, quick, all of you. We must go through the whole program before we report to the chief Yend. We must all be quite sure, sure beyond all doubt. You know him, before we even whispered him of the possibility. I say, howled the doctor from his circular prison. How dare you treat me like a specimen? I am a man, I tell you, a human being like yourselves. What is this nonsense you are ranting? And now at last, it seemed that they listened to him. They gathered round him, and their big eyes stared at him out of their smooth faces, as though he was a guinea pig in a cage, or a specimen stuck on the viewplate of a microscope. Intense emotion at last began to appear on some of those expressionless faces, and the doctor at last began to feel as though his nightmare might be nearing its end, when, once more, its former horror overcame him, and he cringed against his bars. Two of the faces peering down at him seemed to run together like warm plastic. The eyes slurped sideways, and the nose elongated itself into a trunk. The body changed shape into something like a small dragon in one of them, and like a large balloon of flesh in the other. There came a cry of fear in the rest, and a call for volunteers. Two came forward, and very carefully, using instruments like gripping tongs, they grasped the two writhing shapes and moved them towards a cleared space by one of the walls. Incredible, Doctor Who watched the hideous things writhing and changing even as the tongs held them. The pair holding the tongs yelled out in anger, Quick, quick, we can't hold them! Then a square of the wall opened, and the two writhing, swirling shapes were thrust out into that great scurrying throng of monstrous multi-shapes from which the Doctor himself had been so recently dragged. He could not believe his own eyes and he fell drenched in perspiration. The faces of the men around him were grave, and he heard Valcro say to Mernigil, My own friend one of them was. To think of, Mernigil, it's the new one. It brought it in when we enfolded it. It's human itself, but it brought the changing death in with it. Stand clear, everybody. Who will volunteer for this one? Tests or no test, it must go out again. We can't run any risks now. Those two were as normal as any of us. They took the tests only recently. It's the contamination. We must get it outside. No, no, Valcro, said Mernigil calmly. You're letting yourself think irrationally about this creature. This creature is no Yend. He is not native to Yend, not like our race at all. He is something quite new, and we must take him at once to the chief Yend. Fomal will know what to do about it. But the tests, we haven't completed half of them, protested the other. We can't take it up to Fomal before... Doctor Who called from his barred dais in a loud voice that interrupted Valcro's words. That's the first sensible thing any of your people have said. I demand to be taken to this foemale of yours. You have no right to subject me to these indignities. Yes, it makes sense, said Mernigil. The incredible has happened. 
The outside is at last bred amongst an infinity of horrors something rational. Dangerous, of course, obviously. Yes, Fomal must see this. The tests no longer matter here. Fomal will want to dissect this one with his own hands. He will want to see with his own eyes into the glands of this creature, to see what the genes have been doing with themselves to produce, for the first time in so many centuries, a thing once more like a human being. At the words, a cold wave of terror swept over the doctor. They were talking about dissecting him, calmly and coldly, as if he was an inanimate thing. His eyes bulged as they went round the room and saw that, in some indefinable way, the men were changing before his eyes. The changes were slight and scarcely noticeable. A slight shifting of the rigid form of one here, a lengthening or a shortening of the body there, and the changes stopped as soon as they began. The heat of the room had already made him sweat, and now a cold veil of perspiration covered him, and he leaned heavily against the bars while the nightmare rioted all around him. Then he heard Mernigil shout out, Enough of this. We are all intoxicated by this thing. We must all forget what happened. Do you all want to be put outside? There was a hush in the vast laboratory, and they all stood motionless. Curious expressions on their faces. The white bars dropped, and Doctor Who half fell out of the space they had occupied. Instantly, he was held in a vice by an invisible force field and felt himself moving. He was almost fainting, and he never saw the way he went. He came to himself in a large room, alone, except for one tall figure sitting in a plain chair in front of him. The doctor tried to move and found he was free. He put his monocle into his eye and stared angrily at this new man in front of him. This will be Fomal, the chief Yend, the leader of those fiendish torturers in the great laboratory. He started in on a furious tirade, but the words of the other cut across him. I know all that you are thinking, said Fomal coldly and in a voice with scarcely any expression. Those others, my staff, they are nothing but mechanics, technologists. They know nothing. They did well to bring you to me. I was waiting for you. Turn round, strange creature. Instinctively, the doctor turned, and there, standing against the wall, was the TARDIS. He almost sobbed in relief. You brought my ship inside here. How did you do this? I thought no one or nothing saw me arrive. Two such incredible objects close together, said Fomal calmly, could only have connection each with the other. You call it a ship. To me it is nothing but a small box, just large enough to contain one man, and with that odd flashing light at its head. It is perhaps a robot, or some other sort of mechanical servant. The doctor preened himself. At least this creature was talking to him and treating him like a rational being. He had an audience at last. It is indeed a ship, he said loftily. It has carried me for many millions of light years across the empty spaces between the island universes. I have come from a galaxy we call the Milky Way. To us on Earth, this planet is what we call the Nebula of the Crab. I made the journey in fractions of a second. Fomal smiled. Now I see it, he said. You are indeed a new sort of creature, but you are still a mutant. Your disease is as great as that of those poor, mindless hordes outside, except that your disease is of the mind. My staff were quite right. You will be dissected 
and we will see what goes on inside you. It is possible, yes, it is quite possible, that you may be able to add some small items of knowledge to our weary search. You are talking nonsense, Chief Yend, said the doctor firmly. Alone with this creature, no matter how powerful he was, he could not feel the same terror as he had felt in the laboratory with the others. I am a rational man, like yourself. I am a visitor to your world. One thing only puzzles me, put in Fomal. You have maintained the rigidity of form you hold ever since you were first detected in our city. Tell me, how do you do this? What drugs do you use? Where have you been hiding in Wengrol all these years? For I can see that you are not a young man. Why have all the detectors of my city, and of all the other cities of Wengrol, wherever you may have been, not been able to observe you? I tell you I am alien to your world, fumed the doctor impatiently. I use no drugs to maintain my form, as you so absurdly put it. I have never been on Wengrol before. The chief Yend was staring into his eyes, and the doctor saw in them the dawn of some belief. But there was obviously a great force of native disbelief to fight the growing belief. All at once the doctor made up his mind. Reaching into his pocket, he drew out his electronic key and moved towards the TARDIS. The chief Yend made no move to stop him, nor did any of the very irritating force fields hinder him. I will try to convince you, he said firmly. I will convince you that my TARDIS is indeed a ship, a vehicle capable of instantaneous motion in both space and time. Look! And inserting the key, he allowed the electronic impulses to turn the tumblers in the lock. The great doors opened, and the glittering lights from within shone out into the room. If he had hoped to overawe the chief Yend, he was bitterly disappointed. Fomal made no motion to rise. So far I agree, you are right, he observed mildly. Electronic gadgets. But I am a biologist, and such things do not interest me. Wengrol is a large enough world for such a gadget to have been made. To me it proves nothing of what you say. Exasperated, the doctor stood nonplussed, staring at the chief Yend. As he stared, a totally incredible thing happened to his vision. Sitting in the chair opposite him was no longer Fomal, the smooth-faced chief Yend of this world of Wengrol. Instead, his fevered vision thought that he was looking at a weird monstrosity, with multiple eyes and arms, with claws instead of feet. For a microsecond, the thing was there. Then Doctor Who shook his head, and Fomal was back. Was he going mad? But his flesh crawled as he saw that it was not the complete and original Fomal, but that the flesh of the limbs swirled here and there like heavy oil, and then became the solid flesh that he had seen before. It happens at times, observed Fomal heavily. I take great precautions, naturally, but it is highly depressing. No living man has ever seen it before. It is the stress of the emotion at hearing your words that unmanned me. Fortunately, my control is very great. And, after all, I cannot regard you as a living man, can I? You are really nothing but a laboratory specimen. A curiosity to be examined in every molecule, so that any small knowledge we may gain from your carcass may be added to the formidable knowledge we already possess, but which, alas, has brought us a seemingly lot an inch closer to our objective. 
You... You... The doctor fought for words. You changed shape. The thing is incredible, it is... He stopped. Ever since his first sight of life on this world, he had seen nothing but this constant and horrifying changing of shape. In his mind, he searched for all that he knew of biology and heredity, of genes and chromosomes, of glands. Of course, said Fomal distantly. I regret the incident. Now to return to yourself. It has been reported to me that not once since we brought you in, and to my own senses since you were brought before me, has your shape changed, not even by the faintest flicker. Now to me, this is a far greater marvel than this commonplace vehicle of yours. Electronics to me is mere mechanics. Any man with knowledge and tools can make any object possible within the physical universe. It is material, and everything material waits to be discovered. But biology is another matter. Centuries ago, we of Wengrol devoted ourselves exclusively to the science of life. How well we succeeded, you have seen with your own eyes. A great bitterness in the voice struck Doctor Who. The creature before him was not looking at him, but seemed to be staring into far distances. He went on speaking, almost as though he was alone. Who has succeeded better than we? he murmured. Who has made a world of monsters? Who has bred an infinite number of shapes and forms, all... All... All of them horrors and nightmares? I'm afraid I can't understand a word you're saying, sir, said Doctor Who stiffly. To me this is all arrant nonsense. You will kindly explain all this to me, sir. I have been living with horror ever since I was so rudely dragged into that laboratory of yours. I insist on some sort of an explanation. Fomal looked at him with gleaming eyes. It is true, then. It is true that rigidity of shape is your natural form. The norm of humanity is preserved in your genes. Such a thing has never been known for all the centuries since evil Mortain came, bringing with it new and more sinister radiations than our biologists in their most fiendish moments had ever produced. Tell me, creature, before I found out for myself with the electronic scalpel, where in Wangrol were you born? You are a unique marvel. For centuries, no creature like yourself has been seen. Doctor Who drew himself up with dignity. I absolutely refuse to bandy words with you any more, sir. You will not believe my simple statement, so further discussion is useless between us. I have stayed too long in this nightmare world. I will now leave you, sir. Leave you to your nightmares and your horrors, of which I have had more than enough. He walked at a dignified pace towards the open door of the TARDIS. He heard a slight laugh from behind him, and, exasperated beyond measure, he felt himself once more confronted with one of their force fields. Not so fast, creature, said the chief Yend pleasantly. You cannot leave us yet, nor ever, maybe. A new thought has come into my mind. We will speak of it later. Now I will tell you. I believe what you have said. It must be so. Your own constant rigidity of form is its own proof. There is no creature in Wengrol like you. Tell me, in your world, are all creatures like you are? Of course, snapped the doctor. How else should they be? Men breed men and donkeys breed donkeys. Your question is absurd. 
The laws of heredity are quite plain and clear. No creature in my world, or in any world I have ever visited, grows larger or taller than the norm of its species. No creature grows more limbs or eyes than his species demands. You have no mutants? No mutations in form, then? Pursued Fomal keenly, and the doctor started. Such things have been known, he said cautiously. We have known mutations of form over long periods, but not the lightning-swift changes, the horrible frantic forms that happen here. Are you trying to tell me the things I have seen here are the results of mutations brought about by strange radiations? By the star Morten, replied Fomal simply. It swam into our system of planets centuries ago, and it brought with it many new and more powerful radiations, which acted directly on the germ plasms of all the species and all the planets of our system, so that what you have seen... <sighs> but I go too far. It was not only Morton's baleful eye that made us what we are. We, the biologists, are also greatly guilty. We had commenced to experiment with species, we planned to make new kinds of beings, improvements on the standard, new and unimaginable animals and new men, men with organs and powers we only dreamed of. Then Mortain came and made nonsense of our experiments. Chaos broke loose all over Wengrol. The biologists built themselves these leaden cities. All over our globe they contained biologists, scientists and technicians who were searching for the norm of living once more. The norm once so wickedly and unthinkingly tossed away by our foolish ancestors. Nature runs riot on Wengrol, strange creature from beyond our stars. Cruel, ruthless nature, heated by Morten's baleful light, continues with her endless experiments, and we fight her now, endlessly and fruitlessly. Until you came. Until I came, the doctor repeated. What can I do for you? I know little of biology. In my worlds, we took all that for granted. Our mutations, if favorable, took generations to come. What can I do for you? Is there nowhere you can escape to? There is nowhere in the universe we know of, replied Fomal calmly. We have visited, in radiation-proof spaceships, all the planets of our system, and everyone is much the same as Wengrol is. There is nowhere the Yens can fly to and hide from the horrors we have made. Those creatures outside there, put in the Doctor. Do they know? Do they suffer by knowing what they are? Fomal looked at him strangely. We do not know, he said heavily. Some think they do. Some maintain they are mindless. We have seen the eyes of some of our specimens, and have seen things we would rather not remember. The whole life of our planet is concentrated in finding once again the normal germ plasm. We have it in our laboratory, but it proves quite useless. The radiations of Mortain can seep through even our strongest radiation-proof walls, and each and every test tube only produces a man or woman who can degenerate in an instant, as you saw even in my case, without warning. We have developed drugs that will halt it, but only temporarily, and not permanently. Then your position is truly hopeless, said the doctor stiffly. I cannot see why you hold me here. In common humanity, you must let me escape from this cauldron of horrors. I have been here too long as it is. Already my body may have absorbed enough radiation from this star to make me like yourselves. No, no, have no fear of that, muttered Fomal. You are not young anymore. The germ plasm must be mutated very young. You have nothing to fear. 
you will not be long with us. There is one thing you must do for us. It is something we cannot do for ourselves. There are many amongst us who feel that all our efforts will be unavailing, that our first meddlings with nature, followed by the coming of Mortain, have struck too deep at the fundamental structure of life in our system, and cannot now ever hope to be reversed. We would not see the end of our species. Somewhere in the great universe, there may be a new home for us. Will you take us there, strange creature? Take you there? Doctor Who repeated, stupidly. Take how many of you? My TARDIS cannot hold that many. Also, how can I take creatures like yourself out into the sweet, clean universe, where life is stable and normal? If you would force me to do that, indeed you must be the most degenerate and depraved monster ever spawned. Fomal laughed thinly. <laughs> you do me less than justice, stranger. Well, we know that we, the living, cannot ever leave Wengrol. We have made our bed and we must lie on it. But our children can go. Our sons and our daughters can go and leave behind forever the world into which they were generated. He leaned down and lifted up a casket. Opening it, he displayed to the wondering eyes of Doctor Who racks and racks of small glass test tubes. Leaning down, his senses reeled. In each tube hung, suspended in liquid, a tiny human form, a miniature of the normal human form. Test tube birth, he repeated woodenly, and Fomal laughed. One of our successful experiments. I gather that in your world, this was not so. It was a dream, muttered Doctor Who. A dream of some of our scientists. A dream our biologists made true, said Fomal sadly. And our first and greatest mistake. From this sprang all our other hideous experiments in tampering with the germ plasm. There are a hundred human embryos in this casket. Fifty male and fifty female. Take them, strange man of the... What was it? the Milky Way, and plant them in some alien world, some world not racked and tormented by stars like Mortain, some world where once again the mighty race of the Yens may regain its former glory. And you others? said the doctor, throwing out his hand. We will remain, said the chief Yen sadly. We will remain to mortify the flesh of our world, and we will remain to our endless and hopeless task of trying to put the clock back. You will do this thing. Doctor Who stood, fighting it out in his own mind. He was a prisoner here, and only by agreeing could he escape. There seemed to be no choice for him. But the thing itself might carry its own horrors. His flesh had crawled at the sight of those tiny mannequins suspended in the liquid of the test tubes. What horrors might he be spreading into the universe if he took them to a new world? But his indecision was broken by a new thing. A loud babble of voices and the trampling of many feet, many paws, many tentacles. The doors of the room swung open and a great horde of mutants burst in. Murnigil was at their head and already his face was sliding into a grotesque caricature of humanity. They've burst in through a specimen hole, he cried. They're pouring in as all the openings. We can do nothing to stop them. We also ourselves can no longer maintain our rigidity. I am degenerating as I speak. The mouth flowed downwards into the chest, and one eye remained, staring with agonized terror out at a world to which it was saying farewell. Stupidly, 
Doctor Who stood, cringing from the multitude of horrors clamouring into the room. Afterwards, he could mercifully no longer recall many of them. The human mind has only so much capacity for fear. When this is reached, it retreats and knows no more. He felt the chief end pulling at his arm. You are free, he yelled. Into your ship. It is too late now to do what I asked. Like an automaton, Doctor Who walked into the TARDIS and stood looking out again. The horde of mutated monsters was milling round the room, mindless and gibbering. Fomal stood with the casket held in his arms. Give me your sons and your daughters, cried Doctor Who. I will take them away from here and give them a chance to grow into the sweet form of humanity. Throw the casket to me. A light of happiness came into Fomal's sombre eyes, and he threw the casket towards the Doctor, who caught it as the great doors closed. His last sight was of Fomal being overwhelmed by a mob of the mutations and being trampled to the floor. In the greyness between the dimensions, Doctor Who set the casket on a table and opened it. Wonderingly, he took out one test tube and held it up to the light. The sons and daughters of the crab? The embryo hung there in the liquid, obviously quite dead, grey and shriveled and lifeless. He looked at all the others. Not one in the hundred had survived the transition. Either that or the baleful radiations of the star Morton had become, in some unknown way, necessary for the germ plasm to survive. His mind went back to that room on Wengrol. Fomal, the chief Yend, had been a great man, of a great species which had made the supreme mistake of taking into its own hands the instruments which only the mighty and everlasting fingers of nature can manipulate. Nature looked after her own. No creature thwarted her purposes. Each sphere was within itself forever. The sons of the crab would not survive. Their first mistake had been the last. One Doctor, Five Men From the Doctor Who Annual 1984 Read by Geoffrey Beavers Doctor Who first appeared on our screens way back in 1963, when it was thought that the series might run for six weeks at the most optimistic estimate. But the programme had changed quite a lot since those early days, and so has the Doctor himself. In the beginning, the Doctor was played by William Hartnell, and appeared to us as an elderly gentleman in a frock coat, check trousers and a stiff high collar. His marvellously alert scientific brain was evident, but his manner was formal, if not rather stern. This first doctor was accompanied by a young girl called Susan, who called him Grandfather, and he was the first to encounter the threat of the Daleks in an adventure called The Dead Planet. Following a battle with the ruthless Cybermen, the old doctor informed his companions that his body was wearing out. To their amazement, he lapsed into a coma, and a transformation took place. Instead of the white-haired old gentleman, the doctor had now become a much younger man, with a totally altered personality. This new doctor was played by Patrick Troughton, and although the astute and remarkable brain remained, 
The stern manner of the old doctor had gone. This doctor was a little odd, a little eccentric. He wore a very tall hat and other bizarre garments, and showed an inclination for sitting cross-legged on the floor playing a recorder. During the lifetime of this doctor, we learned a good deal about his background. We found out about the Time Lords, of which the doctor was one, through his determination to do combat against the evil might of the War Lords. Turning to the Time Lords for help, he ran up against their philosophy, which forbade intervention of any kind in the internal affairs of any planet. It was because of this attitude that the Doctor had stolen a TARDIS and left his home planet Gallifrey in the first place. Of course, it wasn't long before the Time Lords put the Doctor on trial. Although he was found guilty, his sentence was comparatively light, owing to a brilliant speech he made in his own defence. He was sentenced to exile on Earth, where he had to remain during the twentieth-century time zone, and he also had to change his shape once more. The third Doctor was totally different again. He too showed a taste for flamboyant clothes, but in this case it ran to velvet jackets, frilly shirts and a huge opera cloak. The actor who played this new Doctor, John Pertwee, brought some of his own characteristics to the programme in the form of a fascination for different types of transport. Bessie was introduced, a souped-up vintage car, and so too was the Hoomobile, a sort of cross between a flying saucer and a racing car. During this reincarnation, the Doctor had a strange meeting with his two former selves. Omega, one of the Time Lords, had turned renegade, and the Time Lords decided to send help to the Doctor in order to overcome the miscreant. The personalities of the second and third Doctors clashed almost at once, while the first acted as mediator, but the adventure was successful and the Doctor's exile was lifted. Once again he was free to travel anywhere in time and space. The fourth Doctor took over when his predecessor's body was riddled with deadly alien radiation after an adventure on the planet Metabolis III against the giant spiders and their supreme ruler, the Great One. This Doctor, played by Tom Baker, really made the character his own. He too had a penchant for characteristic clothes, a very long scarf, a broad-brimmed hat and a long coat. A mop of unruly curls and an engaging grin gave him an air of happy-go-lucky charm. But the brain was still there, as active and astute as ever. The fourth doctor had a succession of companions. Sarah Jane Smith, Leela and Romana all helped him overcome several adversaries. And in real life, Lalla Ward, who played Romana, married her doctor. Tom Baker. And so to the fifth Doctor, played by Peter Davison. This latest Doctor is younger than any of his predecessors, and he sports a cricket sweater, striped pyjama-like trousers, a Panama hat, and a long Regency frock coat. 
yet he is still obviously the same doctor as he has been since 1963. There is still that air of eccentricity, with the remarkable brain power in evidence beneath it all, and the doctor is still essentially human, tending almost to stumble across the solutions to his problems rather than working them out computer fashion. And what about the future? Well, only who knows? Only a Matter of Time, from the Doctor Who Annual 1968, read by Annika Wills. Long before the adventure had even really started, Doctor Who had confided in Ben with a leering chuckle that he didn't intend to get all steamed up over something which might never happen. Now, Ben had never really settled down to the idea that the strange vessel in which they were travelling although shaped just like a blue telephone box for police use, was in reality the most complex and marvellous conveyance ever constructed by mankind, the time and relative dimensions in space vehicle. The problems and paradoxes of time only made young Ben's head ache, and it wasn't really much better with Polly. But Polly, being a girl did seem to have a much better grasp of things than Ben. There were times when Doctor Who wondered if Ben had the vaguest idea of what they were all doing, where they were all going, and where they had all come from. Now, Ben stared with exasperation at the whimsical figure of Doctor Who in his baggy clothes and tall furry hat. The Doctor was merrily playing an air on his pipe, and Ben threw an arm up to the vision screens and burst out into his protest. Look outside there, Doctor, he pleaded. There are hundreds of spaceships out there, all heading for Earth, and we are in the very middle of them. We've got to do something, Doctor! Doctor Who cocked an eye to the nearest vision screen and whistled a bar or two. Then he grinned at Ben. Just what do you suggest we do, Ben? He wanted to know. I take it you are assuming that these spaceships are all heavily armed with the most advanced weapons ever devised by men for the conquest of Earth, which is, by my last calculations, a mere 200 million miles away. What do we do? Ben repeated, and he turned to Polly, who'd come into the control room at that moment. You tell him, Paul. You tell him that this great fleet of spaceships is headed for Earth. It's certain from their number that they're not bent on any good. We ought to be doing something about it, you know. Oh, I think I'd leave it to the Doctor, Ben. Polly smiled, and Doctor Who looked approvingly at her. A good head on those pretty shoulders. He laid down his pipe and returned to Ben. We are in the middle of this fast invading fleet of ships, Ben, he said. But do you realise that not one of them has the slightest idea that we are here? As soon as we materialised, I switched off every single electric or electronic device in the TARDIS. We are like a speck of dust in the middle of this fleet of Titans, Ben. They don't know why we are here or who we are. 
but we know who they are, where they are headed for, and where they came from. You do? asked Polly and Ben in one voice. But, but... No but, dear children, chided the rejuvenated Doctor Who, waving his music pipe at them. Since my, um, I suppose you would have to call it my reincarnation, I have developed quite a few little devices that, when I was in my older form, I would not have thought worthwhile. But among the devices which I have found useful from the very beginning is the detector which enables me, without leaving TARDIS, to see what some locality outside is really like what the natives are like, and so on. I had a detector switched on for a few seconds just after we materialised, and it told me certain very interesting facts. Such as? asked Ben forcefully. Well now, the doctor grinned again, impishly. I learned that these creatures are men from Arcturus, at least from one of the planets that circle that great star. They have two extra arms to us, but that is their only difference. They are a fierce and warlike race of men, almost as fierce and warlike, in fact, as the men of Earth. And they are, as you have gathered, Ben, coming to take over our Earth. They are moving in great strength, and they expect to mop us up in quick time when they arrive in our solar system. So, cried Ben, You know all that, so now's the time for us to save Earth from invasion. There must be fantastic weapons in TARDIS that will enable us to hurl them back to where they came from. What gave you the idea that there are any weapons at all in TARDIS? demanded the Doctor belligerently. Glory be, Ben Boy, haven't you been aboard long enough now to know that we don't rely on mere weapons in the TARDIS? We rely on brains, my boy. Brains and savvy. Now I know something that these Arcturian savages don't know about. It's my best weapon, and it's only a thought, not a machine. What is that? asked Ben eagerly, and the doctor looked at him with an arch grin. He tootled a bar or two on his pipe, but made no reply. Ben and Polly stared with exasperation from him to the vision screens, and the same idea occurred to both of them. "'Doctor!' cried Polly. "'Didn't you say that as soon as the TARDIS materialised, you switched off all the electronic apparatus? What about the vision screens? The invaders must know we're here. They'll be picking up our electronic current, surely?' "'Of course they will, my child,' said Doctor Who cheerfully. That's why I switched the screens on again not long ago. I want these creatures to know we're here. They'll get very curious about our vessel, and they will invite, no, kidnap is perhaps the better word, us into their parlour, as the spider does to the fly, eh? He laughed and jumped with glee as the faces of Ben and Polly went almost green. You've gone crackers, said Ben excitedly. We don't know what these things are like. They might be monsters. They might kill us as soon as look at us. Why don't we start up the TARDIS and clear out to some other place or some other time? Oh, you know what I mean. No, my boy, we can't do that, said Doctor Who, and his impish face had gone grave. 
You, Ben, and you, Polly, are too young to have any really proper idea of how time and space and destiny are tangled together in the cosmos. You, Ben, are continually being amazed and abashed by the seemingly purposeless and blind dashes hither and thither of my TARDIS. Polly, being a sensible girl, just takes it all for granted. What's this got to do with these... these Arcturians out there? asked Ben angrily, and the doctor smiled. He always liked getting young Ben riled. Since my reincarnation, he went on smoothly, I myself have got a much clearer view of how these three great abstractions work together. I know now that my TARDIS never moves through time and space and the dimensions in the haphazard and chancy way I thought she did. Now I know that every movement, every curve and every sweep is inexorably controlled by some previous set of circumstances. Destiny governs us all, my children. Destiny has flung us in amongst this invading Arcturian fleet, and if we just obey destiny blindly, all will be well. But, howled Ben, why shouldn't we help your destiny? Why have we got to be blind and passive and just do what she tells us to do? If we get out of here now... The fleet goes on and invades the solar system, Ben, said the doctor sternly. A race of beings with science that enables them to cross the gulf between the stars could obliterate all life from Earth if it so desired. No, the invasion must be stopped. It will be stopped. And that is the secret thought I have in my mind that the Arcturians cannot know. But, and here is the rub, we must be here and now. If we run away to another place or another time, the invasion may take place and may succeed. That's why we have to stay put, Ben. You got those aspirates, Paul, groaned Ben. My nuts beginning to ache again. All this stuff about time and space and dimensions. It's too late for aspirins, Ben, said Polly steadily, and she pointed to the main vision screen. The cloud of spaceships had vanished, and in their place they could see the interior of one of them. TARDIS had been taken inside one of the invading Arcturian warships. Very interesting to study how destiny works, observed Doctor Who, but on his whimsical face there was a small frown. There had been one or two very close calls in the past, or in the future for that matter, which made him think sometimes that destiny worked somewhat sluggishly, or at least by very roundabout methods. Oh well, here we are, arrived at last. I think we will go out and meet these creatures. Always a very stimulating experience to meet a new species, a new culture. An infinite cosmos, my children, an infinite cosmos. Just think of that for a while. He trotted over to the controls and touched the switch of the great door. The door opened and they found themselves staring out into the huge room beyond, which was ablaze with lights and crowded with... with... with what? 
For a moment, all three of them were puzzled. The beings in the Arcturian ship bore no slightest resemblance to any sort of living being that even Doctor Who had ever encountered. Except one species, he amended his judgment. Blimey, said Ben. They aren't human. They... What? They're birds. They've got wings. They've got claws and webbed feet. But they've got faces. His pipe held in one hand, Doctor Who advanced out of the door of TARDIS into the large, brilliantly lit room beyond. He swept off his hat and bowed deeply. Welcome, he said, beaming all over his face. Welcome indeed. You know, whispered Polly, they aren't really birds, are they? The wings, they look too tiny to bear the weight of even such little people. You've got it, Polly, chuckled Doctor Who. They're little people. You know, in Ireland, they swear there are little people. Fairies, wandering about all over the place. At first glance, these... these beings look like birds. Closer examination shows they are really people, almost like ourselves. I say, steady on, burst out Ben. Like us, he snorted. Thank you for nothing, I'm sure. Shut up, my boy, said the doctor testily. We have to meet these people properly. They've come a dreadfully long way, all the way from Arcturus. And as we are the nearest people to Earth, their obvious destination, it is up to us to do the honours. You are from the planet Earth, then? came a voice from the crowd of bird-like creatures facing them. We gladly welcome you to our ship. You are the first living creatures we have seen and communicated with for such a very long time. The voice ended in a sigh. We welcome you to Earth, said Doctor Who. We know you are from the star system we know as Arcturus. You have come a very long way. What is the purpose of your journey, may one ask? We are refugees, replied the one who had first spoken. A bird-like creature with minute wings and small white feathers all over his body. We seek a world of thick air, a world of a deep atmosphere. The sun of our system, Arcturus, is so enormous that for millions of years the vast force of gravitation has been steadily leaking our atmosphere out into space. The process will take a million years. It will be a million years before our world is entirely devoid of an atmosphere. But we decided we would not wait for slow extinction. There came a time when flying became impossible from the thinness of the air. We decided then to flee our own world and seek a better one. You left Arcturus, began Doctor Who, stupefied. But Arcturus is at... 
A distance 40 light years from our sun. How? Don't misunderstand me, was the reply. Many generations of us have lived and died since the great exodus from our world. It is now many thousands of years since the last of us died who remembered our home world. Our wings, you can see for yourself, they are small and useless. When finally we do land on a planet of a thick atmosphere, it will be many generations before our descendants can wheel and soar again through the atmosphere, as our ancestors did in the golden years of long ago. Why did you bring our ship inside yours? put in Ben, suddenly. Ben had been getting very restless and his eyes had been wandering round this big room. It looked to him like a very advanced and very glittering sort of workshop or laboratory, and there were many gadgets lying around that he felt he'd like to have to experiment on. These bird-like things didn't seem to have much go in them, he thought to himself. Their voices were all sort of whistlings and sighings. You couldn't tell from those queer faces what they were thinking either. The doctor seemed to have fallen for them, though, hook, line and sinker. Ben wasn't too sure himself. What about Polly? But Polly was standing beside Doctor Who, her eyes filled with stars. The poor little thing, she was thinking not able to fly and travelling for all those weary years and all those millions of miles just to be able to fly in the air of Earth, which all Earth people were so used to they never even noticed it. She laid a hand on the doctor's arm. We've got to help them. They look so helpless and fragile. Isn't there something we can do to make their journey quicker? Doctor Who stared round the glittering place and a sardonic smile crossed his whimsical face. These, uh, creatures don't seem in very much need of any of my technological help, he observed dryly. They've managed to cross an enormous gulf of forty light years in heaven knows how many of their generations. What frightens me is what their reception will be when these ships arrive in the skies of Earth. Polly looked thunderstruck. Of course! The human race will take them as conquerors from space. There'll be war. We have to try and stop that, Doctor, whatever else we do. The smaller one is interfering, said the Arcturian to Doctor Who suddenly. He is exploring beyond the range of our sight. He may be in grave danger. There are very many instruments and machines in our ships of which we no longer have the knowledge. With the passing of the generations, it has all been forgotten. We know that they are automatic and self-sustaining, and for many generations, that is all we needed to know. Ben! Ben! cried Doctor Who. Don't wander away, boy. Where are you? Stand still so that we can see you. With bulging eyes, Ben came through an opening. He grinned at Polly and Doctor Who. You should see in there, he burbled. Hey, what? I've never seen so many eggs in all my life. 
these things sure are birds after all. Several of the Arcturians crowded round Ben, and it was very obvious that Ben had broken some sort of taboo by seeing the eggs of the Arcturians. Ben glared round him at the bird-like things, and his hands grabbed a shining piece of apparatus from the wall. He cradled it in his hands and backed away towards the bulkhead. His fingers searched for something and found a stud. Two of the Arcturians approaching him vanished as if they had never been. Doctor Who and Polly stood in stunned silence, and Ben's mouth gaped open. The smaller one was not to know our customs, came the bird-like voice again. We cherish our young most carefully, as you can imagine. They are all we have of the past, and our only hope for the future. Doctor Who took the glittering thing from Ben's nerveless fingers. Back into TARDIS with you, my boy. You're lucky they don't even know this thing can be used as a weapon. It begins to look to me as if the mere idea of weapons is absent from their mentality. Imagine this little lot on Earth. Oh, I didn't mean to, began Ben brokenly. Where had those things vanished to? Was that thing the legendary disintegrator? Ben looked longingly at it, but the doctor put it resolutely behind him. Both of you now, he barked, back into TARDIS, and make ready to move when I give the signal. I'm coming with you for some apparatus, then I'll leave you in charge until I return. No meddling now, just leave all the controls as I will set them. He left them inside the TARDIS control room and went out into the large room in the Arcturian vessel. He was absent for an hour, and then he came back. An hour to duplicate the adjustment in each of their ships, he said calculatingly. Then we will be off. We're going to lead them in triumph, children. These poor homeless things are going to be led to where they can once again live a full life. Not to Earth, blurted Ben, with a memory of that glittering thing he had held in his hands. Why, if they reach Earth... Precisely, Ben, said the Doctor. He turned to the control console and was very busy. The view of the Arcturian room faded, and they were in space again surrounded by other Arcturian ships. He pressed a small hidden lever and the light changed outside. A tunnel in space seemed to open up before them and TARDIS streamed along it towards a soft glowing light that came from a far distance. The Arcturian vessels followed. Then TARDIS halted and the line of refugee ships continued. The last one, vanished into the glow, and then the doctor pulled the hidden lever up. The glow vanished, and TARDIS was once again in empty space, this time free of any signs of Arcturian invaders. The ninth dimension, I calculate, he beamed at the open-mouthed Ben and Polly. Plenty of stars and planets there. I told you, children, this is an infinite cosmos. 
there are an infinite number of dimensions. We happen to exist in just one of them. But those poor creatures, wept Polly, and the doctor soothed her. They'll be all right. They'll find a world where they can be happy. If they'd come to Earth, they'd have been exterminated. Think what men of Earth do to their own birds. And these Arcturians didn't even know what a weapon was. We've saved them from extermination, children. They'll get along. But, but, but this ninth dimension of yours, Doctor, babbled Ben. Where is it? What is it? Oh, don't try to understand, my boy, chuckled the Doctor as he reached for his little pipe. I'll give you a little tune. Don't worry your young heads about all of that. Like I told you, it's all a matter of time. Secrets of the TARDIS From the Doctor Who Annual, 1982 Read by Dan Starkey The Doctor's remarkable time travel machine, the TARDIS, holds many secrets which are known only to the Doctor and his fellow Time Lords. Truth to tell, we don't really know too much about it, but we have managed to piece together one or two facts from snippets of conversation we've overheard. The name TARDIS comes from the initial letters of the phrase Time and Relative Dimensions in Space, and that phrase sums up the TARDIS's ability to travel not only through space, as other more conventional vehicles do, but also through time, which conventional vehicles do not. When it was originally built, the TARDIS had the ability to alter its shape and outward appearance, to blend in with whatever environment it was currently visiting. Unfortunately, the mechanism which controlled this function broke down on the Doctor's first visit to Earth, and until he gets round to fixing it, the TARDIS will remain in its present form. That form is, of course, the shape of one of the now obsolete police call boxes, which were once common in many towns. You don't often see them now, so if you do catch sight of one, it might well be the TARDIS itself. Though it looks simple enough from the outside, the Doctor's vehicle is in fact packed with incredibly sophisticated electronic equipment. And indeed, it is so complicated that on more than one occasion, it has defied even the Doctor's attempts to control it. Just about the most amazing fact about the TARDIS is that it is bigger on the inside than on the outside, and the Doctor has been heard to explain this away, rather cryptically, by remarking that it is dimensionally transcendental. And that is really all we know about the Doctor's time machine. If we find out any more, we'll let you know. End of Disc 1 Disc 2 War in the Abyss from the Doctor Who Annual 1973, read by John Coleshaw. Look, Doctor, said Joe Grant, the Doctor's young laboratory assistant. I'm afraid at the moment I couldn't care less if the tides are rising all over the world and if the astronomers are beginning to think the sun is swelling gradually. 
All I'm worried about is that my uncle is on that oil rig in the Antarctic, and the men there haven't been heard from for three days now. Doctor Who stared owlishly at her. But my dear child, Antarctica is dotted from end to end with bases. Practically every civilised country in the world maintains a scientific base there. How could it be possible that this oil rig, or whatever you call it, could have been lost sight or sound of? Joe smiled patiently. Sometimes this mysterious doctor who was her boss could be very exasperating. Often he was almost like a child. The rig of which my uncle is manager, she told him, is actually built on the earth of Antarctica, hundreds of feet below the surface of the ice. The frozen earth on which the rig was built is itself the peak of a buried mountain. If they haven't reported in... Hush, child, snapped Doctor Who sharply. I'm thinking. And there's got to be a connection. Your uncle's rig, Joe. Was it for oil or natural gas? For oil, of course. The pipeline ran to the Weddell Sea. And, said the Doctor portentously, the seismologists have reported quakes from the Arctic Ocean. I've just told you that the tides all around the globe are reported as rising. And several world-famous astronomers swear that their instruments show the apparent swelling in the size of the sun. I put all those facts together, and what have you got? Joe stared for a moment. Sun going Nova, she suggested, interestedly. The modern youth, he marvelled. Something which might scorch all life from Earth is merely a matter of interest. I think, child, I said the apparent size of the sun. Now I think again. Sounds silly to say it, she giggled. But the only other thing I can think of would be that the Earth is moving closer in towards the sun. Admirable reasoning, he complimented her. My training in logical thought is bearing fruit at last. But Sherlock Holmes, I think, who once said that when you have proved everything impossible but one thing, that thing, no matter how improbable, must be what you're looking for. Pack a couple of bags, Joe. Buzz the New Zealand base on Antarctica. You'll find its location and coordinates on the Big World Atlas. Where are we going? She asked him blankly. Where else? But to drop in on that uncle of yours. I presume there is some way down through the ice to this most peculiar oil rig of his. The doctor grinned. We must tell him to keep up his reports at least. But I have a feeling that we may find something very different. But it wasn't as easy as the doctor had airily indicated. By now, every base on the entire continent of Antarctica was off the air. No one had reported in or been able to be reached for the past 24 hours. Air reconnaissance was being prepared at once, of course, and the doctor and Joe were on board the first jet to land on the airstrip. The peculiar standing in which the doctor and his laboratory were held throughout most of the scientific world made it easy enough. But when the doctor did try to put his peculiar ideas to the chief of the expedition, he got short shrift. Earth moving inwards, in its orbit round the sun, Major General Carter scoffed. I'm no astronomer, man, but even I know that such a thing, even if possible, would take years, or at least months. Very good, sir, said the doctor stiffly. I expected some such reaction. If there was time, I might have been able to bring you evidence from the world's greatest scientific brains as to the possibilities of my idea. As it is, my assistant and I will have to do whatever we can on our own. A shock awaited the military man when the jet landed. They were not able to raise base on their radio. It was as though an invisible cap of something was over the pole. 
through which radio would not penetrate. Quick, Joe, muttered the doctor when they landed. See those snowcat vehicles lined up there? Follow me and head for the first one in line. Everyone in the party was dressed exactly alike, in white fur parkas and snow boots. And Joe and the doctor were not noticed at first as he drove the vehicle out of the line. It dawned on the general that something was amiss, and there were shouts, but it was too late. I had no idea you could handle one of these things, doctor, Joe said with admiration. His eyes twinkled at her as he replied. In my time, child, and it's been a long time, there are precious few of the vehicles devised by mankind that I haven't been familiar with. Look, there are the pipelines coming out of the snow. All clear so far. They were now quite out of sight of the plane party, and so they got out of the strange vehicle which had made Antarctic exploration possible. The pair cautiously approached the spot where the pipes entered the snow in racks of four. Doctor Who looked thoughtfully down at them. A kind of ravine, would you say, Joe? He asked, and she nodded. I've seen Snap's uncle has sent home. These pipes go along a flat, clear ravine with an ice floor. But I can't say, of course, how far into the snow they'll go. The crew, of course, said the doctor puzzled, would be continually clearing the area around the pipes. If they were free and capable. What else could they be, doctor? She asked, astonished. Unless, of course, you think that maybe... Her lips quivered. Maybe they are... She could not finish the sentence. And the doctor cursed his clumsiness. Back into the cat, Joe. We'll find them. Maybe a snow or landfall has trapped them in their quarters. And we'll have to go in and pull them out. Joe pointed to a row of gauges, set into the bends on a set of thick pipes. The gauges were all still, each needle resting against the nil mark. No oil was flowing out of the rig. The doctor frowned darkly. Recklessly now, he drove the snowcat past where the pipes vanished. The snow seemed hard and firm enough, but the vehicle rocked and tottered just a little bit more than he reckoned it should have been doing. One moment they were rolling along, then, with a rocking lurch, the machine turned over on its head and catapulted downwards through lighter snow. Both the doctor and Joe Grant were knocked unconscious. They were quite unaware as the snowcat plunged downwards through the soft snow to land on its tracks on firm ice. The doctor came to first and stared through the windows, now covered with snow. Then he roused Joe, and they crawled out of the machine. From where they stood, they could hear the clanking of machinery and the flashing of lights. Then he heard a voice, speaking in English. Thank the Lord someone's come, said the voice. We're all in here, locked up. You'll find a spare key hanging on the metal foot of a winch, just outside the door. Uncle, uncle, cried Joe. Doctor, that's my uncle's voice. They're safe. They must be locked in somewhere. Get that key if you can find it. Like moving through a wall of still snow, they found the winch and got the key. The door opened, and they lurched into a small metal room lit only by flash lamps. Inside were the crew of the oil rig. When we found that the radio didn't work, said Grant, after he had kissed his niece and calmed her fears, 
We thought we were goners. Those... those things wouldn't even take any notice of us. Seems they don't even hear us. What things? asked Doctor Who sharply. Things? What do you mean? Wish we knew, replied Grant. I suppose they're machines, really, though not like our ideas of machines or robots. They talk to each other and we hear them very faintly. But they don't even seem to hear us. Begin at the beginning, please, said the doctor patiently. But Grant only shrugged hopelessly and grinned round at his men. You'll say we're all just mad as coots, he laughed. Locked away alone here in the snowy wastes. We've lost our marbles and flipped our lids. Well, let me be the judge of that, snapped the doctor. Perhaps if I lead you on, I can encourage you to tell me just what is happening. My own theories were that some power or powers were engaged in the totally impossible task of shifting the axis of Earth closer to the sun. In eons, that could happen naturally. This power is doing it quickly. Now you can laugh. I wish I could, said Grant. These last few hours, we've all racked our brains. By George. You'll be right. It all fits in. Some of us have caught what sounded, or at least felt, like telepathy. These things are robots, Doctor. They have no real voice. We've been hearing snatches of what should have been speech. Robots, repeated Doctor Who. Impossible. Robot civilization inside Earth? By heaven, if that could be true. Good thing we found out in time. I suppose this will be one of the exits they will use. When they emerge to invade the world and try and conquer us. Now, you fellows must give me all the information you can so that we can stop this. There will be other exits, of course. We've had the evidence. The Earth is actually moving closer in orbit to the Sun. And the Sun appears to be increasing in size. I don't quite get it. If the Earth gets too close to the Sun, all the atmosphere will be scorched from the surface. All the vegetation. All the living things. No, it can't be true. Only too true, Grant told him. These... these things. They call themselves Clatris, or something close to it. Don't care a hoot about the surface of the globe. They don't use air. And water is poison to them. No. They're not going to invade us. But wipe us off the face of the earth. Because our way of living is opposed to theirs. A natural cause of civil war between two species, said the doctor dryly. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Grant. They object to the way in which we are stealing petroleum, their lifeblood... They find us mining deeper and ever deeper for our metals. They sense our underground tests of nuclear devices. How many of them are there? How far do their domains stretch? Grant shrugged and looked round at the others. They all shook their heads. No idea, Doctor. Might be thousands, might be millions. Would guess not millions, though. On the surface, we evolved into animals from one-celled things in millions of years. Under sunlight, down here, in the dark, with only internal heat, their evolution from the regrouping of metallic molecules to the obvious intelligence of these clatris must have taken far, far longer. I'd say there's 
Relatively few of them compared to the number of humans. Even so, said the Doctor, we've no choice. It's war between them and us. War for survival. Now, before I came, I tracked your location on a seismological map. The rig is planted in the cone of a volcano. Lifeless for millions of years, right? Dead right, boss, put in one of the men. Remember how we used to laugh about it sometimes? Living on the lip of a volcano. With an old map the scientists prepared for us. Remember those geologists who gave us the go-ahead for the test drills? And the dynamite stock in the north corner, said Grant, his eyes gleaming. There's a tunnel up there, Doctor. Maybe more than one. Explode dynamite in there, and we might, just might, have one extinct volcano suddenly coming to life. What are we? But not too suddenly, grinned the Doctor. I don't aim for any suicide mission. Here, Joe. You can't be with us in the tunnels. You and half the crew get that snowcat upright and functioning again. At the first rumble, get it started. Give us five minutes. We aren't here by then. Scarper out as fast as the tractors will take you. Agreed, Grant? I guess so, said Joe's uncle, doubtfully. He'd often wondered about the strange job his niece had. But he hadn't guessed that it ever led into corners quite as tight as this one. Oh, I'm quite okay, Uncle, Joe laughed. Now that I know that you're still in one piece. With the Doctor, you get the feeling that nothing can ever go wrong. I hope you're right this time, shrugged her uncle. Get going, then. Whenever they passed an exit glowing red, Doctor Who was reminded of the stories of the underworld, and demons and devils and so on. He did fancy he saw glimpses of the mysterious Clatris. Tall, big, metallic-looking creatures, moving like men, yet not at all like men. Rather, there seemed to be very many different shapes and forms. For many different functions, mused the Doctor. This time they would be stopped. What about another? And a next time? The dynamite was laid in many tunnels, and the trail of cordite laid back to the small metal room. One of the crew streaked out to warn the snowcat crew and give them the five minutes. Then, Doctor Who drove home the plunger, and they all ran out through the snow as though banshees were after them. The low, rumbling noises reached them as the snowcat plunged through the snow and ice. They sped towards the jet, standing on the ice runway, and there they all piled out. Doctor Who grabbed the arm of the Major General quite roughly. All aboard, sir, and off the deck, he grinned. Have to report a volcano waking and stretching itself. Won't be healthy around here after a bit. Carter began to protest, but others in the expedition began running and following Doctor Who's pointing finger. He saw a frontier of flaming pink lava, with hundreds of side runnels creeping down from the ice mountain. He did not argue. From the air, they saw the lava spouting from the main cone, and for a moment they were in danger from the great boulders of ice that were flung up in every direction. This isn't a usual weekend for us, laughed Joe Grant. It's normally a great deal calmer than this. 
Grant grinned at the doctor. I can see, though, Joe girl, that you don't exactly have a dull life with the doctor, eh? Famine on Planet X From the Doctor Who Annual 1979 Read by Louise Jameson and Dan Starkey The cosmic storm could not have struck at a worse time. The TARDIS was plunging through the twin vortexes of time and space, and the Doctor was lying on his back in the middle of the room, a puzzled frown on his face as he stared up into the electrical entrails of the central control panel. His eye lit upon a small glass file surrounded by a faint blue glow. He cursed himself in disgust. Of course, how stupid of me. I forgot to refill the actualizing filter with essence of valor. We'll never appear where we thought we would now. He was chewing his thumbnail and still pondering the problem when the first waves of the storm struck. The inside of the TARDIS shook violently and glowed red, then yellow, then red again. Leela looked around her with wild eyes, her hand on her dagger, backing nervously towards the wall like a threatened animal. The TARDIS began spinning. The doctor grabbed hold of the leg of a chair and hung on tight. The red glow turned to a violent electric blue and an aura of untamed energy filled the ship. The doctor tightened his grip until his knuckles shone white. He looked at his hand. It seemed like his knuckles were popping through his skin. He gasped. Now he could see the bones through the flesh of his hand. The doctor turned, looking for Leela. She was sinking slowly to the floor. He could see right through her flesh. Her bones glowed as if charged with amazing power. He saw her skeleton fall face down, and then he felt his own senses spinning away from his control. He felt the grip of his hand weaken, and his neck, its muscles now refusing to obey the commands of his brain, let his head fall to the floor. Bright lights beat down on the doctor's face as his senses struggled to swim up through a whirlpool of aching blackness. He opened his eyes. He saw Leela, her bones no longer glowing, lying motionless on the floor. The doctor put his hand to his head. The lights in the TARDIS seemed too bright. He heard Leela groan and staggered to his feet. Still feeling his aching head, he helped Leela to stand. She squinted as if in pain. The doctor propped her up against a control bank and began to study his space charts. Where are we? asked Leela. The doctor put one transparent chart on top of another and traced a line with his finger. I don't know, he said. It's only marked here by an X. One moment the children of Ra were searching under rocks for some root or grub to ease their hunger, and the next they were staring in wide-eyed astonishment across the grotesque landscape of their planet. The displaced atoms of the TARDIS were regrouping in the shape of a police telephone box. Its appearance, seemingly out of nothing, left the children in awe with the muscly, skin-covered tendons between their horns vibrating noisily. 
The door of the TARDIS opened and a tall figure emerged. It was wearing a long scarf and a wide-brimmed hat. As the children cowered behind a rock, another figure came out, smaller, with longer hair and dressed in animal skins. The children of Ra exchanged glances. Should they risk meeting them? The hunger gnawed away at their insides. It had been six moons since they last ate, but they remembered the warnings their parents had given them about outsiders. Finally, Og could stand it no longer. He gestured with his tentacles for the others to remain in hiding. Then he got up and walked towards the two strangers. Better that he, the eldest, should die trying to find food than that all of them should starve for their meekness. The doctor's first glimpse of Og startled him. He had seen many strange animals in his time, but the sight of this diminutive three-legged octopoid with massive horns seemed totally incongruous with the dry, orange, rock-strewn desert they were in. Og stopped in front of him, and the harp-like strands between his horns began changing. Strange shapes ran across them, much as a loop travels along a skipping rope. The doctor watched with undisguised fascination. Fantastic. He muttered to himself. What is? asked Leela. I do believe that these creatures communicate using those strands on their horns. Like, like... Leela struggled to think exactly what it was like. Like living hieroglyphics formed through incredible instinctive muscle control. I wonder what he's saying. I wonder what he's saying. The doctor was positively startled by Og's perfect imitation of his voice. He bent down and held out his hand. Hello, little fellow. Pleased to meet you. The doctor sighed and turned to Leela. He doesn't understand. He looked back to the strange symbols rippling between Og's vibrating horns. Still, I suppose he'll have a better chance of learning our language than we'll have of deciphering that moving sign language on his head. He turned back to Og. What can we do for you, anyway? He opened his hands in a gesture meant to convey his confusion and willingness to help. Og pointed to his mouth. Food, eh? Food, eh? replied Og. The doctor fetched a bowl of water and a selection of fresh fruit from the TARDIS and lay it down in front of Og. Og's uppermost tentacle snaked gingerly out and wrapped itself around a Marsuvian melon. He swallowed it whole. Leela and the doctor watched and waited nervously for Og's reaction. Food, eh? bellowed Og, and the strands between his horns began vibrating so fast the doctor could not see them. Within minutes they were surrounded by eight other children of Ra, each one shouting... Food, in a flawless reproduction of the doctor's clipped, correct voice. The doctor brought out more melons and the children fed hungrily, each one of their single bulbous eyes gleaming with glee. I've often wondered why monoptic races are more capable of expression through their eyes than multi-optic ones, the doctor said, gazing into Og's grateful orb. Perhaps it is just a... what do you call it? An optical illusion. Never mind, it seems we've made friends with the natives at least. 
Now all we need is some essence of valor, and we can go. A brilliant beam of white-hot light lanced across the Doctor's shoulder and shattered a rock lying on the ground nearby. The Doctor dropped to the ground, pulling Leela down with him. He saw the tips of two horns dipping down behind a rock. He grabbed Leela's arm and made a dive for the TARDIS's open doors. A second white-hot lance of death hurtled into the door above their heads. They rolled inside, and the Doctor activated the controls that shut the doors. Once inside, they were safe. Leela rested on the edge of a chair, and the Doctor stood with his back to her, working the controls to the video screen. What do you think all that is about? she asked. What do you think all that is about? No need to repeat yourself, Leela. The Doctor was unhappy about the sudden attack. But I didn't, she protested. But I didn't. Food, eh? The voice switched from Leela's to the Doctor's in the middle of the sentence. The Doctor and Leela peered over the top of the central control panel. Og stood there, his single eye brimming with light blue fluid. He must have sneaked in behind us, said the Doctor. Og stood there silently as a large teardrop of light blue fluid splashed to the floor. A series of very clear symbols ran slowly across the tendons between his horns. Leela's eyes widened. Peace, she said. What? Look, there it is again. Peace. She pointed to the recurring symbol on Og's tendons. Peace? Asked the doctor. Peace, said Og in Leela's voice. Peace? He repeated in the doctor's. Leela said, When I was a child, my mother showed me a carving in a rock she said had been made by people from the sky. She said it was a sign of friendship, a sign of peace. He's trying to tell us he means us no harm. Peace, repeated Og, halting the symbol in the middle of each of his tendons. The doctor went back to his space charts. The nearest solar system he had visited was Elpax. He tried to remember the customs of the planets he had visited there, the legends and myths. Leela, you're a genius, he said distractedly as he pulled an ancient plasti-metal book down from a shelf and flicked through the thousands of super-thin pages. What I said about living hieroglyphics wasn't too far out. Here. He spread the book on the table. The open pages were covered with thousands of strange symbols. The host language of Abstler, he explained. A nomadic race of philosophers and philanthropists. There are legends of them almost everywhere, but I've never been able to catch up with them myself. He found the star-shaped arrowhead symbol of peace and showed it to Og. Peace, said Og his one eye darting over the page, the flicker of recognition suddenly flaring into a joyful fire. He formed other symbols on the tendons between his horns and then pointed to them with his tentacle. Now we're getting somewhere, said the doctor. He took the book from Og and put it back on the table. Then he lifted Og onto his knee and they poured over the book together, pointing at symbol after symbol. With painstaking slowness, 
he began to learn the history of Planet X. Og was the eldest of the children of Ra. He did not know where the language he used came from, only that the planet had been peaceful until the famine came. When the octopoids began to starve, they blamed Ra and said he had used magic to take away the crops. When the starving octopoids turned their wrath on Ra's children, Ra gave himself up as a sacrifice to their superstitions, hoping to show them how foolish they were being. But the famine continued, and the other octopoids began to persecute Ra's children. Og had led them away to try and scratch a living out of the desert, but the rest of the octopoids had tracked them down, and now they had captured all of them but Og. What will they do to them? asked Leela. A simple straight circle formed in the middle of Og's tendons. The doctor searched the page until he found its meaning. Death! Death! Og confirmed. The doctor got to his feet and began rummaging in one of his storage cupboards. He brought out a box with a round glass globe on the top. Not if I can help it, young fellow, he said. Leela, do you mind looking for that bag of seeds I brought with me from Lars? It's in the specimen tray. Leela began searching for the bag of seeds, and the doctor twisted a knob on the side of the box. The glass globe crackled with interference, like that scene on a video screen. By carefully adjusting the knobs around the box, the doctor was able to isolate a single wiggling white line. With some more delicate handling, he managed to make the line still. He removed a small, flat panel from the visual computers and attached wires from it to the box. Then he took out his cosmic screwdriver and drew the star-shaped arrowhead sign of peace on the panel. As he did so, he flicked a switch, and the white line in the globe looped upwards, formed the shape, and sent it running back and forward across the centre of the glass. The doctor stood up, with a book under his arm, and took the packet of seeds Leela offered him. Now, let's just hope they're willing to talk. They weren't. As soon as the doctor stepped out of the TARDIS doors, the octopoids opened fire. Two beams bounced off the TARDIS, and the doctor managed to deflect another with the plasti metal book. Leaving the glass globe behind, the doctor ran a zigzag course towards a large rock and leapt behind it. As the white-hot beams from the octopoid's guns slammed into the rock, blowing large chunks into the air, the doctor crouched down and opened his bag of seeds. He took out three of the silver, ovular-shaped seeds and spat on them. He counted up to twelve and then threw them towards an open space of desert, close to where the octopoids were sheltering. Within a minute of their landing, they began to sprout large grey stalks. The stalks grew upwards about two feet, divided, and then began flowering. Dull red fruits swelled up near the middle of the flowers. The doctor watched with a satisfied smile and said a quiet, Thank you, under his breath to the research scientists on Lars. He crouched further under cover and waited. After several minutes, a single octopoid appeared looking round with fear and wonder in his one eye. He scuttled up to the plant, pulled off a fruit with his tentacles, and popped it in his mouth. The 
tendons between his horns started moving, and soon he was joined by the other octopoids, who greedily pulled more of the fruit from the small tree. While they were gorging themselves, the doctor made his way at a running crouch to where the children of Ra were being held. Skirting round rocks and racing across the open spaces, he reached the large rock they were sheltering behind. Pushing his body close to it, he edged round. The octopoids had left only one of their number guarding the children of Ra, and he was staring longingly at the others, his gun hanging limp from his tentacles. The doctor launched himself forward and grappled the guard to the ground. With the octopoid restrained, and with the children of Ra hurrying after him, he ran back to the TARDIS. By the time the other octopoids noticed them, Leela had activated the doors and they were rushing inside. Phew, said the doctor, plonking the struggling octopoid down and handing out the melons. The octopoid guard stared balefully at his captors. He watched the other children of Ra feeding hungrily and then, nervously at first, he ate. The doctor waited until the hatred in his eye died down. Then he went over and began drawing on the panel. The line in the glass globe looped into life. The doctor pulled no punches. He left the octopoid in no doubt about what would happen if he did not stop his fellows from persecuting anybody, and especially the children of Ra. He said he was going to give them crops that would grow, but that, if they disobeyed him, he would stop them from growing. The doctor didn't like using such crude emotional blackmail, but he was already planning to advise Og on how to refuse the myth once the octopoids were prospering again. He gave the octopoid the bag of seeds from Lars, told them how to plant them and how to collect more seeds from the fruit, then told him to go and join the others. The children of Ra stood beside the doctor and Leela, their tentacles happily entwined, and watched the video screen. The octopoid guard wriggled his tendons at the others outside, and they all turned to the TARDIS and waved their tentacles gratefully. Then they trooped off into the desert to plant the seeds. Og and the children of Ra bade a long and tearful farewell to the doctor and Leela. The doctor knew that, in Og, the octopoids of Planet X would have a fine, upstanding citizen, prepared to battle injustice. He watched them troop out of the TARDIS, and then he crawled back under the central control panel. That's funny, he said, noting that the glow around the empty Vallow file had changed from blue to red. The file is empty, yet this glow would indicate that it is perfectly operational. He tried the controls. They worked. Amazing. It must be the energy bombardment from that cosmic storm, charging up the TARDIS. I'll have to check this out when we land. He flicked the master switch. Where are we going? asked Leela, as lights began winking on and off all over the ship, and the hum of the TARDIS rose again. Where do you fancy? asked the doctor. The TARDIS began to dematerialize. Oh, I do not... Oh, doctor! Look! Quickly! The doctor just had time to catch a quick glimpse on the screen before the TARDIS entered non-space. Some freakish malfunction of the controls had taken them high above the desert on Planet X. 
down below he could see that the octopoids had planted the seeds, not in a line, but in a giant shape. The plants were flowering, and from the sky the shape was clearly visible, that of a star-shaped arrowhead. The doctor returned to his controls with a smile. Peace. Night Flight to Nowhere From the Doctor Who Annual 1983 Read by Geoffrey Beavers Will passengers travelling on special charter flight number 357 for San Francisco International Airport please proceed to boarding point D the precisely accented tones of the female flight announcer echoed from the public address system speakers placed at various points around the departure lounge of London's Heathrow Airport. Despite the lateness of the hour, the building was bustling with activity, and as the announcement came, a buzz of anticipation ran through the crowd. Here and there, Small groups of well-dressed business types happily picked up their hand luggage and excused themselves from conversations they had started to pass the time, glad their wait was over. As they moved off, others sighed with disappointment and checked their watches for the hundredth time, telling each other that the next announcement would be for their flight. Few people present that night could have even dreamed that standing in a little-used storage room nearby was an old-fashioned blue police box that could have taken them on a flight to a place beyond their wildest imagination. Julie should be here soon, Doctor, Tegan said. That was her flight they just announced. The doctor nodded without turning to face his young companion, more interested in where he would take the TARDIS next than in meeting Tegan's friend. To him, Time Lords had better things to do than stand around airport terminals for hours on end, but then he had, he reminded himself, promised Tegan just this one little favour. "'I can't wait to see her again,' Tegan offered, trying her best to cheer the doctor up. We were best friends on my stewardess training course, you know. The doctor did know. Tegan had told him over and over again. He sighed. One day he would get himself a companion who didn't talk so much. He remembered that Tegan had never really stopped since the day she had accidentally stumbled into the TARDIS while on her way to her first job as an airline stewardess. Look, doctor, there she is. Tegan jumped up and down with glee, attempting to signal to her friend through the crowd. I'll bring her over and introduce you. And with that, Tegan ran off, scattering a holidaymaker's luggage in her eagerness. Looking after her, the doctor wondered how Tegan was going to explain her unexpected reappearance to her friend. Hitching a lift through time from an alien with two hearts was definitely out. Shaking his head, he turned to Nyssa, who had been standing silently stunned by the busyness of the airport. Never mind, Doctor, she said, smiling sympathetically. It's nearly over. But it was only just beginning. When Tegan returned, she was alone, her face confused and troubled. She didn't know me, Doctor, she said, obviously upset. She walked right by me as if I didn't exist. 
It took Tegan a few minutes to persuade the doctor that something was wrong with her friend. Eventually, though, he conceded, and the trio followed Julie Harris through the maze of airport corridors to boarding point D. The doctor was soon sure that he had made the right decision. Julie Harris walked like a robot, her legs and arms stiff, her eyes glass-like as if she'd been hypnotised. The doctor had seen the symptoms enough times to recognise what was wrong. The girl's mind was under the control of something outside her body. When they reached the boarding point, a security guard stopped the doctor and his companions from going through, allowing only Julie Harris to pass when she coldly showed her identification. Disheartened and worried that she could do nothing more to help, Tegan stomped off up the corridor. The doctor and Nyssa had just started following her when the Time Lord stopped and spun back round, having spotted something out of the corner of his eye. At the boarding point, a group of businessmen were filing through. In the centre of the group, a darkly set man looked around, a slight smile of satisfaction on his lips. He was in sight for only a second, and then he had moved on. But the doctor found himself running after him, only to be stopped once more at the gate. This flight, barked the doctor to the security guard, who chartered it. This flight, sir, answered the guard, checking his roster. Why, the gentleman who just passed through. Rupert Masters of the Masters Corporation. Describe him to me. As the guards started talking, the doctor became aware of the growing whine of turbo-engines from outside on the tarmac. Keeping half his mind on what the guard was saying, he turned and looked out of the window. Through the driving rain and bitter wind of a typically dismal London night, he could see the plane preparing for takeoff. What was it that the guard was saying? The man had strangely compelling eyes. Strangely compelling eyes. As special charter flight number 357 began to taxi down towards the runway, the doctor stared after it. The expression on his face, that of a grimly frustrated hunter, whose quarry had eluded him one time too many. Back in the TARDIS, Nyssa reeled in shock after the doctor had repeated the description that the guard had given him. The master! She gasped in horrified disbelief. The master, echoed the doctor, without turning from the central console, his mind calmly intent on the task before him. We have to get aboard that plane. The doctor said nothing more for the next five minutes, but studied the minutest pieces of information that the various gauges on the console offered him. Never before had he planned to attempt such a special jump as he did now, and he was fully aware of how dangerous it could be, yet he refused to allow the master to complete whatever sinister scheme he had in mind. Basing his figures for course, speed and altitude on a copy of the master's flight plan that he'd acquired from the airport, the doctor intended to rematerialize the TARDIS 
thousands of feet up in the air, aboard the speeding plane. It was with horrified trepidation, then, that Tegan and Nyssa watched the Doctor activate the TARDIS and declare, We're ready. Hold tight. The pressurized cargo hold of the plane was dark and gloomy, filled only with the powerful sound of turbo-engines as they sucked in air and thrust it out again, superheated, far out on the wings. Soon, though, that sound was joined by another, the strangely out-of-place wheezing and groaning of the TARDIS as it began to materialize in the rear of the hold. Although the doctor's computations had been as exact as possible, there was no way that he could have anticipated the jumps and swerves of the plane as it bounced along on air pockets. At first, the TARDIS took partial form a few inches from the floor at a dangerous slant that threatened to tip it over, causing the time and spacecraft's altitude alarms to blare through the empty hold. Then the stabilizers took hold, and the TARDIS faded from view again, only to rematerialize a couple of feet to the left of where it had been. Still slightly above the floor, the TARDIS landed with a bump sending a couple of packing crates crashing from their pile. Finally, the light on the TARDIS roof stopped flashing, and after a delay, the door opened. The doctor stepped out, followed by Tegan and Nyssa, looking shaken but otherwise unharmed. "'Welcome, Doctor,' said the master. The doctor spun round in the direction of the voice, from a hatch at the end of the hold, the master stepped into view, his face a mask of smug satisfaction. Three stewardesses appeared behind him, their eyes glazed and zombie-like, their hands holding strange-looking guns. One of them was Julie Harris. "'Julie!' cried Tegan. "'She cannot hear or understand you,' declared the master." She and the others listen only to me. He turned and walked over to the doctor, his manner that of an old comrade at arms, instead of the arch-enemy that he really was. He tutted, like a schoolmaster reproaching a child. I thought I recognized you at the airport, doctor. You do get around, don't you? Still, I must congratulate you on getting the TARDIS here. They would be proud of you back home on Gallifrey. I am disappointed, though, he added. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened had you missed. What are you planning? the doctor demanded, refusing to be irritated. All in good time, doctor. All in good time. The master turned to the stewardesses. Take them to the others, he ordered. Guns aimed, the stewardesses stepped forward. The passenger deck of the plane, where the Doctor, Nyssa and Tegan were taken and bound securely to seats, slowly danced with projected pools of coloured light which oozed and slithered dreamily across the interior shell. Finding their eyes drawn towards it, the trio saw that the light emanated from a large spinning disc that was attached to the front of the bulkhead. 
it cast out the colours in shifting hypnotic patterns. Snatching their eyes away again, they saw what would happen if they watched the disc for too long. In row upon row of seats, people sat in zombie-like silence, seemingly unaware of their surroundings, their eyes fixed ahead of them. They were all in deep hypnosis, mesmerised by the light. "'Who are these people?' asked Nyssa. The master smiled and waved his hands over the captives like a proud shop-owner exhibiting his wares. "'Governmental aides, security advisers, private secretaries privy to the innermost secrets of those in power.' The master dropped his hand. "'All of them,' he said, satisfied." the willing guests of the Master's Corporation. And now, he added with a mischievous grin, my helpless puppets. The doctor frowned. He could understand how the Master had gained the influence to entice them all aboard. The establishment of a supposedly highly respected and benevolent organization would be child's play for one such as the Master but he could not understand why. "'You look puzzled, my dear doctor,' said the master. "'Allow me to elucidate.' The master turned and barked a command to Julie Harris. Immediately, Tegan's young friend stopped dead in her tracks, frozen like a statue. The master stepped over to her and placed his hand on her forehead. Then, as Tegan in particular watched in horror, a small section of skin fell away to reveal a complex display of wires and plastic. Julie Harris was an android. Sick, Tegan buried her face in her hands. Think of it, Doctor, the master gloated. All these passengers hold key roles in high places, and soon they will be replaced by my androids, obeying my commands, my directives. Think of what I could achieve. You don't have to spell it out for me, a solemn-faced doctor answered. With the influence these people have in world government, you could reshape countries. With a few carefully guided decisions, you could attain sufficient power to take over the world. And then, Doctor, and then I could guide its armies into war, destroy continents, obliterate the planet which you hold so dear. Revenge, thought the Doctor. The Master was still after revenge. You still have to replace them, he said. The master laughed. You won't stop me this time, Doctor. He consulted his watch. In a little over two hours, we will have arrived at my destination, which of course is not San Francisco, and then it will all be over. He began to laugh. I defy you to stop me in that time. Still laughing, the master walked away heading in the direction of the flight deck. It took an immense effort of will for the Doctor and the others to avoid succumbing to the hypnotic disc for almost two hours. But they managed it, 
helped by watching instead blobs of rain as they splattered against the window next to their seats. When the time had almost passed, Tegan gasped in pain, and the doctor turned his head in concern, afraid that the hypnotism had proved too much for the young Australian. Instead, Tegan stood triumphantly by the seat, clutching a small nail file and waving the severed straps that had been holding her down. "'Well, if we're going to help Julie and the others,' she said, smiling, "'we can't do it sitting around.' Tegan cut the doctor and Nyssa free, ensuring that the android stewardesses were not around to see their escape. Rubbing their sore wrists, the trio moved to the window and looked out, trying to determine their location. Outside, a storm raged, tumultuous rain and thunder cracking the sky. Through a thin layer of cloud, Tegan began to recognise a coastline that she had been made familiar with in training school. Of course, she yelled, it's the southeast coast of North America. So, said Nyssa, so that means we're flying over the Bermuda Triangle, interrupted the doctor. Legendary vanishing point of hundreds of earth ships and planes, the perfect place for the master to choose. To the authorities, this flight will be just another of those logged as inexplicably missing. And when the master has replaced these people, cried Tegan, it'll reappear again, just like many others have done. There will be no investigation. Doctor, we have to get onto that flight deck. The doctor was already moving towards it. When he burst through the door onto the flight deck, the master spun round in shock and surprise, but he still had enough presence of mind to quickly be holding a gun in his hand. The doctor, Tegan and Nyssa backed off against the wall. They all knew that the master would have no hesitation in using it. It's too late, doctor. Look, the master boasted, pointing out at the front windscreen. Ahead of the plane was a nightmare. The doctor knew immediately what it was. The master had used his TARDIS to rip a hole in the fabric of space, a rip which manifested itself in a bright red gash that spread down from the heavens. It was a gash through which the plane was about to disappear. Once we have passed through, Doctor, the master cried, you will be in my domain. Already the first waves of turbulence from the rip were hitting the plane, and everyone on the flight deck had to steady themselves. Only the pilots, relentlessly aiming their plane towards the gash, seemed unperturbed. More of the master's androids. Taking advantage of the situation, the doctor threw himself at the master. His timing was perfect. As the ship lurched badly, the two Time Lords tumbled to the floor. Not now, Doctor, screamed the Master. I won't allow it. Despite the Master's confidence, he soon found himself losing the desperate struggle. Although both were Time Lords, the Doctor had the younger and fitter physical body and all the strength that came with it. Finally, while the master was trying to aim his gun, another violent lurch sent him flying into a control bank, knocking him unconscious. The doctor stood over him, panting for breath. 
Tegan smiled. He's not used to all this physical stuff, she said. The master proved to be the smallest of the doctor's problems. Ahead of the plane, the gash came closer and closer, glowing like the entrance to hell. Try as they might, none of them could deviate the plane from its course. Desperately, Tegan examined the flight panel, madly flicking switches and adjusting dials, trying to ignore the pilots as they calmly steered the plane into the master's domain. Barely controlling her panic, she finally stood back from the console. It's no good. The master's jammed the controls. The doctor concentrated. With minutes to go until they crashed into the unknown, it was a time for decisions. Get the passengers into the TARDIS, he ordered. Hurry! With no desire to argue, Tegan and Nyssa ran from the flight deck, followed soon after by the doctor. The departure lounge of Heathrow Airport teemed with holidaymakers surrounded by stacks of luggage. Outside, the night sky still poured with rain, and all of them were eager to jet off to more exotic locales. Back in the little-used storeroom, the wheezing and groaning of the TARDIS began to sound. As soon as he could, the doctor disembarked his passengers. He knew it would not be long before the hypnotic effects of the master's sinister light show wore off, and as he ushered them out into the corridors of Heathrow, he didn't want them to have any recollection of the TARDIS. Someone would find them soon and begin attempting to unravel the mystery, but somehow he didn't think any guesses would come near the truth. With Nyssa in her room, and Tegan searching the airport for the real Julie Harris and the rest of the crew, the doctor had a rare chance to be alone. He wondered what had happened to the master in the gash. Would he survive? Would he return? With a nod of inevitability, the doctor realised that the answer was definitely, very definitely, yes. Time Wake From the Doctor Who Annual, 1986 Read by Colin Baker Why here, Doctor? Perry asked for the third time, as she glanced at the deserted road ahead, not a soul in sight. She and the Doctor were walking along the wet pavements of an early morning London street. The Doctor, seemingly oblivious to Perry, held a small black box before him and was watching a meter intently. The box made a plaintive, bleeping sound. Because, Perry, he finally answered, the time anomaly is very close. Perry paused, considering this, and then asked, What is a time anomaly? It's a phenomenon which shouldn't be there, he replied tersely. Using the TARDIS's tracking equipment, I was able to pinpoint it to this area. In the spatial-temporal-dimensional and geographical sense, of course. Of course, echoed Perry. She was all too familiar with the Doctor's incorrigible curiosity. But this time it was different, she thought. The Doctor seemed worried 
by what he called the time wake. Is there any danger? It seems as if someone is using a very primitive, unstable time vessel. Sounds like the TARDIS, Perry muttered. Whoever the operator is could cause a major time slip, continued the Doctor. You see, his primitive craft has left a wake in the space-time vortex, rather like that left behind by a ship at sea. The wake extends between the present day, January 1986, Perry interjected, yes, and 1720, added the Doctor curtly. The bleeping from his machine increased in pitch. We must be close, he said excitedly. The doctor stopped, sweeping the box in a wide circle around him, then swivelled back sharply. The bleeping was loudest in the direction of the road. He walked with the box at arm's length, Perry behind him, until they reached the middle of the road. The bleeping reached its highest pitch as the doctor lowered the box over a manhole cover leading down to the sewers. He gave an apologetic smile, and Perry nodded her head in silence, resigned to what was to follow. In restrained silence, hands on hips, she watched the doctor lift the sewer cover free. She could smell the stench rising already. The doctor gave his lucky charm, the cat on his lapel, a little pat before disappearing into the black depths. His voice floated up with the smell. Coming or not, Perry? Perry looked down the hole, shrugged her shoulders, and gingerly climbed down the ladder. She and the doctor stood on a ledge, running along the sewer wall. At first, she thought the circle of light on the opposite wall was from the doctor's pen torch. The doctor said, Look, that wall has an iridescence of its own. But how? Perry asked, looking at the eerie light. Must be the end of the time wake. Come on. The doctor jumped athletically across from one raised side of the sewer floor to the other. Perry was more hesitant. She had no desire to fall into the sewer stream itself. She leapt across the metre and a half gap, clinging to the damp brick wall for safety. The bright glowing patch was nearby, and they walked along to it. If we don't catch this buffoon, he could cause havoc, warned the doctor. Perry's voice betrayed the concern she felt. Shouldn't we go in the TARDIS? No time, Perry. The trail will be gone by the time we reach the TARDIS. The time wake will heal itself in a few hours. Now, hold my hand. Together they leapt at the brick wall, and Perry shrieked in alarm, expecting to hit solid stone. Instead, she and the doctor entered a short, luminescent tunnel, through which they floated to another glowing point the other end of the time wake. They landed feet first on firm ground. The doctor looked around. They were in a cellar, with a glowing circle of light on the wall behind them, just like the one in the sewer. Here we are, Perry. 1720. 
18th century London. Using his pen torch, he surveyed the cellar. Perry watched the time wake mournfully. Was it contracting? The air was cool around them, and dimly she could see barrels of ale. What is this place? The cellar of an inn. That time machine has to be near. It's probably rather large and heavy. Difficult to move it elsewhere. They searched the cellar high and low, but could not find the machine. Or maybe it's got a chameleon circuit like the TARDIS? Perry suggested, adding ruefully, one that works. The doctor was obviously hurt. For your information, he lectured, only the more advanced species in the universe have such technology. Judging by our friend's clumsy mode of transport, he does not. Perry smiled to herself at the doctor's indignant reply, then noticed something sticking out of the cellar wall. She looked closely at the long ridge. It was a door. Doctor, she called. Come and see. The doctor looked. A secret passage. Well done, Perry. Now, you stay here. Are you kidding? I'm not staying in this creepy place. The doctor flashed a conciliatory smile, and they both opened the secret door and entered a narrow passage. The torchlight showed a door at the end of it, which they opened. As they stepped into the room beyond, all thoughts of furtive entry and keeping out of sight were forgotten as they were confronted by a bizarre spectacle. The long room contained rows of large, vertical glass tubes, each one glowing from within and filled with a swirling mist which failed to hide the occupants. The two time travellers instantly recognised the people inside. At last, the doctor spoke. British Prime Ministers? Extraordinary. It's weird. Like someone collected them, the way you might collect butterflies. Every Prime Minister is here, confirmed the Doctor. From Walpole to Pitt the Younger to Disraeli and Gladstone, Lloyd George, Churchill, Wilson, and Thatcher. But how can they all be here? queried Perry. We know that none were kidnapped. Do we? snapped the Doctor. You're probably right. They must be android replacements. Facsimiles of the real people kept in suspended animation. But why? And why stop at Mrs. Thatcher? Well, whoever made the time wait came from 1986, and Mrs. Thatcher was PM at that time, said the doctor. Our traveller must have had historical data up to that time. So he could make a copy of every British Prime Minister... Up until 1986? It's crazy. Unseen, a figure in a long black cloak stepped into the secret passage and closed the door. The doctor heard the sound and rushed to the door. It was locked. He must have seen us and realized we knew too much. What do you mean? 
Perry was answered by the hum of machinery, and they watched in horror as each of the glass tubes slid into the ceiling. Orange mist spilled into the room. Good grief, said the doctor, trying frantically to fathom the controls set into a wall panel. Each android jerked into life, lurching stiffly towards the doctor and Perry. The doctor tried to reassure Perry and himself. Now, uh, don't panic. The androids were very close. I, I can't stop them, but I think... I can divert them and galvanise them into one united action. Desperation drove the Doctor on. He did not know that the androids were starting to rock from side to side. Gradually, each one steadied, recovering from its drunken behaviour and lurched over to the door. The appearance of each android was equally unstable now. The outer disguises they wore were slipping. The artificial plastic faces and wigs dropped to the ground, revealing smooth, metallic heads. The leading android, still bizarrely dressed in the clothes of Walpole, smashed the door from its hinges. The other androids followed it out of the cellar. As the last one stumbled out, the doctor sighed with relief. Well, that's the worst costume party I've ever been to. He began to make lightning adjustments to the black box he carried. Well, where are you sending them? Perry asked. I'll have to lead them. They receive orders on a certain radio frequency. I'm adjusting this so that it transmits that frequency. They should follow me everywhere I go. Understand? The Doctor breathlessly ran off at breakneck speed down the secret passage, through the cellar, pushing through the disorientated androids, up the stairs of the inn and out into the street. Perry barely had time to notice the crude mud road and wooden buildings of London in 1720. The doctor paused, and the android prime ministers emerged from the inn, following his black box. Excellent. It's working. We'll have to run. Their actions are becoming more fluent. The Doctor and Perry led the staggering procession through the deserted streets of London, like the Pied Piper, thought Perry. It must be early morning, she suggested. The Doctor grinned mischievously. It's a good thing there's no one about. They'd have a nasty shtish. Perry looked back at the androids who followed. "'dressed in the fashions of the forthcoming 266 years. "'Suddenly she grimaced. "'What's that smell? "'Superlative! "'That is the smell of the Black River Thames,' said the doctor grandly, "'before adding quietly, "'It's rather, rather fee in 1720. "'Not a very hygienic time.' For the second time that day, Perry had to endure an awful smell. The doctor stood on the riverside, hand shielding his eyes. He noticed a nearby rowing boat moored to the bank and waded through the mud, the mud to it. Placing the transmitter in the boat, he then set it adrift. 
the swell of the dirty Thames carried it away. The undiminished attraction of the transmitter drew the androids to the Thames, and they waded in, until each one disappeared under, under a collection of rising bubbles. The android prime minister had met at watery end. end. The doctor beamed. Well, I think I handled that quite successfully. Really? What about the guy we're after? He could build more androids. Minutes later, they arrived back at the inn. A thorough inspection soon located the time machine. It was in a roofed back room. What a mess, Perry commented. The machine consisted of a bewildering mass of tubes and wires dangling over and interconnected with a bare metal frame. The centre of this tank contained a chair. The doctor eagerly examined the machine. Ah, I think it can only manage short hops, otherwise the pilot would die. It isn't in the same league as the TARDIS. Meanwhile, Perry had had enough, remembering how the doctor had said the time would close. If that happened, they would be trapped in the 18th century. Doctor, come on. The time wake is getting smaller every second. The doctor knew the danger, but he had to dismantle the machine. If I remove one vital part from the machine, it will be rendered useless. He paused, considering. Then in a blur of speed, he ripped a large silver cube from a central pedestal in the framework. The primary polar enhancer, that's a... Do it, do it! To the cellar. The doctor arrived like a whirlwind in the cellar, Perry close behind. The end of the time wake, glowing on the cellar wall, was much smaller. The contraction was quicker than I thought, warned the doctor. Perry cried, Hurry, doctor! as they ran towards the white circle. Before they could reach it, the cloaked figure they'd seen earlier barred their way. He was humanoid, with a dark blue skin of a scaly texture. His deep voice resonated through the cellar. You destroyed my androids. The doctor ignored the question. My, my doctor, and this is this is very... We followed you through the time wake left behind by that preposterous machine at the inn. A look of fury clouded the creature's face, but the doctor continued. I wouldn't bother with it anymore. Just return through the time wake to 1986, he suggested airily. How dare you? I am Tusk, time engineer from Bestonas. Yes, insufferable big head, so I've heard. Anyway... That machine's very unstable. Energy dissipation or wastage has caused a gaping time wake. Perry was bursting with curiosity. Why copy all the Prime Ministers? she asked. My vessel crashed on Earth in 1986, England, but I time warped it to 1720. My androids were to replace all the Prime Ministers up to 1986. And under my intervention, history would change. The androids would allocate more money towards research. People such as Charles Babbage, the father of Terran computers, would benefit. 
By 1986, Earth could have intergalactic vessels, one of which I would steal. Task's ruthless plan outraged the Doctor. A risky and doomed plan, interfering to such an extent in the history of a sentient race is against all the moral statutes of all travellers. Anyway, we got a piece of your... Perry began before the doctor could stop her. Give it to me! Yelled Task. Get behind me, Perry, commanded the doctor, as Task produced a laser pistol and levelled it at him. The doctor brought the vital silver cube from his pocket, and Task watched in horror as he began to juggle it. Now, Task, a deal, the doctor confidently stated. No, shouted Task. The doctor tutted sadly, throwing the cube even higher from hand to hand. Ah, 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 all right, Task agreed hurriedly. Go, Perry. Perry realised that if she argued, she could endanger the doctor even more. She jumped into the circle of light, and seeing her depart... The doctor was satisfied. You can still leave through the time-wake task, he coaxed. I have a time machine of my own. I could take you to your home planet. You lie! This angered the doctor. If that's your attitude, he began, suddenly lunging at the white hole with incredible speed. He disappeared, landing feet first in the London sewer of 1986. Perry's anxiety gave way to relief. You're safe. The doctor smiled, smashing the cube from Task's machine. Quickly, get clear, he said in alarm. The time wake was collapsing, the light circle shrinking. Suddenly, a blue hand emerged from the circle, like that of a drowning man above quicksand. The hand was then sucked back, and the time-wake disappeared forever. Task died as the vortex healed, collapsing on itself, said the doctor wistfully. Then his mood changed, and he bounded up the ladder and out of the sewer. The sun greeted them as they walked back to the TARDIS. The doctor sniffed the inside of his coat. What's the matter? Perry asked. I think I need a bath. Doctor Who, Time Wake and Other Stories was read by Dan Starkey, Geoffrey Beavers, Annika Wills, John Coulshaw, Louise Jameson and Colin Baker. The readings were produced by Neil Gardner with sound design by David Darlington. The executive producer for BBC Audio was Michael Stevens.